session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. No studio number to call in today because I'm on Instagram Live for the show, but you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get into... The books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The Black Banners Declassified by Ali Sufan. The Black Banners Declassified How Torture Derailed the War on Terror After 9-11. I had heard about this book um, or about this individual, Ali Sufan, who used to be, I think, a member of the CIA. And he talks about what I've gathered, how torture doesn't work um, when trying to gather intelligence. But anyway, looking forward to reading this book. Um, I was kind of joking with my brother. The book I'll talk about tonight is about death, and then this one's on torture and terrorism. So a lot of uh, uplifting reads for the holidays. Happy holidays, everybody. So that's for this week, The Black Banners Declassified by Ali Sufan. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Mortality by Christopher Hitchens. And uh, it was a short read, but kind of like a short punch to the gut in that it was very heavy and intense, but a book that I'm very happy I read. Um, It was, you know, mortality, as the book implies. He wrote this book at the end of his life. In some ways, he maybe didn't finish it. The last chapter of the book um, includes some essentially fragments that were found, I think, on on his laptop or that he was working on. Uh, but essentially, he really didn't finish the book, so to speak, but it was compiled based on some articles he had written for Vanity Fair, where he was a writer for about 20 years. He joked that he wrote, would write about everything except for sports, um, and he really did cover a lot of topics. I would recommend going, first of all, reading this book, Mortality by Christopher Hitchens, which I'll talk more about, but also going on YouTube or just checking out Christopher Hitchens, a really wonderful speaker. Um, As he wrote, he also spoke very, uh, just very real and genuine, no sugarcoating, said things as he saw them, which made him at times controversial, but he did not mind that, maybe even relished that. I saw him talking today talking essentially how conflict, disagreement, he didn't really say it exactly this way, but it's really progress comes from that, or it's the only way we have progress, which I agree with, that if we don't disagree and first and foremost allow the space to disagree, we don't even have the space to grow. We won't allow ourselves to grow. And unfortunately, that's something we're seeing in today's political climate where... um, we don't have the space to disagree because we're not even having the same conversation. We don't even have the same facts. So we almost disagree too strongly to the point where we really can't disagree because we don't even see close to eye to eye. But he, he was someone who 
told it as it is, or as it was for him. And in this book, it was no different. It was very real. So if you read this, don't expect some kind of inspirational story of triumph over cancer. He even talks about battling cancer and how he's not sure how he feels about that phrasing because it's not a battle he chose. It's just, you know, he's warding it off or trying to get, you know, survive it in some degree. Even that term, maybe he wouldn't like surviving it. Um, But he does share what he goes through. He was diagnosed with stage four esophageal cancer. And um, his father passed away from the same cancer at the age of, I believe, 79, something around that. Uh, And Christopher Hitchens himself died about 18 months after his diagnosis at the age of 62. So we do see his physical decline or deterioration, and it's very heartbreaking to see that. Even there was a chapter kind of middle end, just talking about getting poked so many times and his veins collapsing and they can't even get blood and it's challenging and you know the way he tries to joke with them but it's you know it's just a very it's heavy but it's very real um and really for me that was a painful thing to read when i was experiencing i actually uh have a slight i wouldn't call it a phobia but i dislike strongly when you have to do a blood draw i'm actually going to get one done next week um it's something I don't look forward to. So when I was reading that part, it was even more painful for me, but then also makes you realize how small some of the battles you might have compared to what other people are going through. So I might not like getting my blood, draw, blood drawn once every however many months or year or whenever it might be. You know, he was getting poked and prodded as many individuals who are um, dealing with cancer or other illnesses are time time again, countless times a day till it became itself such a painful uh, kind of enterprise Um, but that was a very heavy chapter but the whole book has that that feeling and so if you don't know much about Christopher Hitchens uh, he was known for many things including being very anti-religion even he wouldn't call himself an atheist he would say he's anti-theist meaning against essentially God or the way that God is believed by other people and so and he was not he was unapologetic about that as he was about everything else he talked about um and, and he shares early in the book how when he got esophageal cancer there was people that were saying he shares a, a fairly long paragraph excerpt from someone i'm assuming posting online uh, who said who else feels christopher hitchens getting terminal throat cancer was god's revenge for him using his voice to blaspheme him um, really horrible thing to, to see and he you know t- that someone is saying God would want to punish him for speaking ill of God so it's obvious that this was the case uh, I obviously have many things to say about that but he himself shares something that for me is very interesting when I reflect more recently on God or when people talk about well, God has a plan or there, there's a reason for everything. I can't tell you there isn't a reason for everything, and, and maybe there is, and you are more than welcome to that belief. What I find even harder to comprehend, though, is when people say they believe in a God who is omnipotent and knows everything and all-powerful, and at the same time, so you have that, and this is where, to me, it's incompatible, a God who is uh, knows everything, all-powerful, can you know, knows what's in your heart and your mind, uh, you know, so much greater than us. But then people claim to know 
why he's doing what he's doing if they believe it's from him. Uh, to me, that's very hard to comprehend how you can say that same God is someone, I know why this happened. And I always have problems with that. And I especially have problems with this when someone, let's say, loses a loved one. And people say, I know God did this because X, Y, and Z. One of the worst ones I've heard is in the Iranian culture at times, they'll tell someone when a loved one dies at a young age, that something bad was going to happen in their future, or even worse, they were going to do something bad. And this prevented that from happening, which is, to me, just unspeakably bad on so many levels. Um, and it even defies some level of logic. Again, if God is all-powerful and already did everything right, why would he have to intervene in this way? Um, but so he talks about that. How can we say or claim to know what God's plan was? And also, why would God um, do the same thing to children, he says? Secondly, would this anonymous author want his views to be read by my unoffending children, his own children, and also individuals who get sick, uh, that's the later part, who get cancer, children who get cancer? Did they do something um, to deserve that? And also, he says, why would God punish me in this way? There are far worse ways, like a thunderbolt uh, that, that would do something worse. Uh, so it's interesting seeing these dynamics play out in the book. And he also mentions how there was an online wager because he was such a strong anti-theist against religion and believing in God. Would he, as he approaches death, change his mind? Which often we see um, in movies and books, but also in real life, we might see people as they get closer to death, they believe in God. And so it's interesting there was that wager. And in the book, he a few different times says he doesn't or he's not going to, or if he does, that probably means he essentially lost his mind or something has happened to him and it's not really him anymore anyway. Uh, he also talks about Pascal's wager. So Pascal's wager, if you're not familiar with it, is essentially that we don't know if there's a God or not, but the wager is that, or he says, I think it's also called Pascal's gambit. Well, if you're wrong and there is no God and you believe in God, well, okay, you just had a belief that turns out not to be true. But if you're right, you get everlasting life and heaven and salvation and all those good things. So it seems to make sense. If you're wrong, you believe in something and it turns out to not be true. If you're right, you get something really good. It would make sense to believe in it. And what he shared in the book was something I've always kind of held against this in a way, it seems interesting and very witty and, and clever um, type of a, a thing. Well, I should believe in God because just, just in case it's true. And then if I'm wrong, well, I'm just wrong and that's okay. I don't really lose much. Again, this all-powerful God who, who knows so much and, and can be aware of so much, somehow he you can trick him by just fake believing something. I, I don't know. To me, that doesn't really make sense um, that you know, that would be the case. But anyway, he says that he he doesn't believe in, you know, he still does not believe in God. Uh, he also shared, I thought it was interesting, um, a, you know, there's a saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, now, I think there's definitely something that hardships, even small, sometimes large, are what help us grow. And we do grow through challenges. But I don't believe that we can, as a blanket statement, say anything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Some people go to war and they might come back physically weaker than they did. They might also have PTSD and feel that they are mentally weaker 
with what they went through. Um, or if you lose a loved one, you a child heartbreakingly dies at a young age, I, I think to say it's made you stronger, it, it's... I think it's definitely at least debatable and often clearly some of the things that don't kill us make us weaker. And even in the case in seeing him, slowly the cancer made him weaker until he died, which is very sad, but that was the truth. So uh, I do think, and I think he says, you know, Nietzsche is credited with it. He thinks that Nietzsche got it from Goeth, but I'm not sure. Nonetheless, I think sometimes we... Some statements can have value, but we have to be careful realizing that they don't necessarily mean they're always true. So we sometimes use this phrase to reassure a loved one, as we tend to do, that if they're in pain, they shouldn't be in pain. Or are you sad about what happened? No, don't be sad about what happened. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And to me, it's kind of a cop-out or a way out of facing the reality which is that sometimes things are just tough and hard. It doesn't mean you can't overcome them. It doesn't mean life doesn't go on for those that are still living, but it doesn't necessarily mean just because there's a nice saying that it's always going to make you stronger. And so another you know experience that I had reading this book, he talks about getting the cancer and, and you kind of see it take its toll on him. Um, and slowly he starts you know, talking about different things that he experiences from the chemotherapy, the radiation, horrible physical uh, ailments that he has to experience. And, and just today I saw a interview with him, a, a later interview close to the end of his life where he had lost his hair um, and, you know, was going through and he looked very different. And cancer, of course, can have that effect. Again, it doesn't necessarily just make you stronger. It does make people weaker and eventually does take many lives, sadly. Um but something I felt reading this book, it was like, in some ways, watching someone die, reading it, but experiencing that, which was very heartbreaking and painful to see. You you hear him and he's sharing some things, shares some things about regrets or things, you know, in life. Um, and I really think, I know people like to say we should have no regrets. And I understand that too, from the standpoint of, well, you are who you are based on all your life decisions. But if you did things that hurt people, let's say, um, just to say, well, it made me um, who I am, so I wouldn't go back and do it differently, or presented with the same opportunity now, would you do the thing that hurts someone? I, I think that's that's pretty silly. Um, so I, I don't agree with that. Sometimes I think people in a almost prideful way want to say, I have no regrets. Why should I have any regrets? I think if you can't look back on your life and see many things you could have done better, um, you're probably not looking hard enough. doesn't mean you need to judge yourself in a negative way. You can still accept yourself with the decisions you've made, just like we can accept others. We don't have to judge them. But to just claim as another one of those blanket statements, I have no regrets to me, doesn't really make sense. Uh, for example, if you're a parent and you did something that hurt your child, to say I have no regrets because, you know, I am who I am based on everything I did, uh, to me is pretty, not even just silly, it's... Uh, uh, pretty harsh from a moral standpoint. Um, but, you know, as I thought about that, seeing him die, so to speak, by reading this book and him sharing very openly about his experiences. Again, I, I know this is the holiday season and it's going to be an uplifting quote to match that. But really, we're all dying. Um, 
uh, yeah, I know that sounds really good, but it is the truth in the sense that, you know, it's, it's kind of in a way funny when we say, oh, he's dying or she's dying. What we really mean is they're, you know, they have some illness that we're pretty clear that they're going to die by a certain time or in a short period of time. But essentially, uh, you know, there's some quote, it's like, hey, don't take life too seriously. Nobody gets out of here alive. We're all dying. So in that sense, we don't know when that will be. Sometimes it becomes more clear. But it was a reminder of that, that everyone, of course, is here only for a finite amount of time. We don't usually know how long. And that has implications for how we live our life and in that how we treat others, or I think it should have that. And so in the remainder of the show, I'm going to touch on some of those issues. But I highly recommend this book, Mortality by Christopher Hitchens, a heavy read, as I mentioned, a short one, but very intense. But uh, it did make me think about a lot of things. And some of those thoughts I'll share as we come back from the commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book Mortality by Christopher Hitchens. Uh, as the author of the book, Christopher Hitchens shares his experience as he gets diagnosed with stage four esophageal cancer and, and approaches death. And it's a very heavy read, but a powerful book that I hope you will check out. I, I was recommended the book by good friend Alex. He has recommended a few books. Greatly appreciate that. Speaking of which books, uh, it's end of 2020, so early next year, probably next week, Monday or Wednesday, I'll do my top 10 books um, of the year. More than likely, this will be on the list. Uh, but I was talking about how, as much as we, you know, even when I talk about this book, oh, he wrote this book as he was dying. A and really, we all are dying. You can say both. We're, we're living and we're dying, all of us, in, in a way, at the same time. Um, and we don't know exactly how long we're going to live, but we know that we're all going to die at some point. And so I think, of course, that's something we don't like to talk about. I joke that, you know, not a very pleasant or uplifting, maybe not uplifting, actually, it can be, but happy topic for the holidays. Uh, but I do think it's an important one and actually a good one that we want to face. Death is one of those things we like to deny. We like to, we know, obviously no one would deny or almost no one would deny that we're going to die, but we don't like to think about it or we pretend like it's not there most of the time because it can, it can feel scary to face that. But in a lot of ways, we won't take advantage or utilize the opportunity that is life without in some way facing or recognizing that there is death, meaning that we do have a limited time on this earth in this existence and what we do with it is up to us but at times if we don't recognize that it's limited we might take it for granted uh, you know mark twain has a quote that i won't i don't remember all of it but essentially it's saying that at the end of your life you're going to regret not the things you did but the things you didn't do and, and i really think that's true and as a therapist you see it every day that people are in their comfort zone so to speak they are living their life with strategies that make sense or made sense as a child, but may not anymore. We stay comfortable. We stay in a certain space that feels okay. But 
we don't like to change or do things that push us out of that comfort zone. And we feel, we think we feel okay with it, but a lot of times it's at the end of life or later in life, or if you're faced with death in some way that you recognize you regret so many things that you didn't do or you wish you had done. Uh, And I think that's very important. And, And to begin with, one is that it can be a reminder, it sometimes sounds a little cliche of, but really to show more love and kindness to people around you. You know, people will say, if I knew that was the last time I was going to speak to him or her, I would have said this or I would have said that. Well, well, why wait? Why not just tell them? We really don't know. And doesn't mean everyone you talk to is about to die. But you don't know when you'll have a chance. And you're not going to regret sharing kindness or love with someone. Even actually Christopher Hitchens in that interview I uh, was watching, he said people send him notes, uh, had sent him, you know, letters, correspondence, people he didn't know, sharing very kind words about what he, you know, had done with his work, his writings, what he'd said. And, uh, you know, he said it actually had a very nice effect. And one thing he even, he, he said he regretted is not doing that more himself, sharing that appreciation to others. So it's, it's a good reminder. Both you don't know how long you have to say those words and you don't know how long uh, everyone else or whoever else we're talking about in this instance will be around. Again, it could sound bleak, but to me it's actually recognition of the gift that is life, that we do have to take that for granted, and or not take it for granted, and sometimes we do take it for granted when we try to live in this fantasy, in this denial of death. We tend to have this feeling with a lot of things, relationships, even you are sometimes in a... Um, setting where you're going to be somewhere for a short time, we have this fantasy that it's going to go on forever because goodbye is scary. Endings are scary for us. So it's easier to live in that fantasy world of forever, um, which is not the reality. And you're going to lose that opportunity if we don't take advantage of it. So I do think it's very important. And I I believe in the book um, Transcendent, Transcendence by Scott Barry Kaufman, where he was talking about Abraham Maslow and he himself, Maslow, faced his death. He had some kind of medical, I forgot what was the issue he had that made him face death. And he talked about how this made him actually feel more alive or take his life more seriously. And we we hear stories like that, whether it's real life or movies, books, where someone has a near-death experience and it changes them. And I think it's important for us to bring ourselves near death, not actually almost killing ourselves, but recognizing that life does end, bringing us face to face with death, to recognize that we need to utilize the time that we have. So I hope by remembering this, by being reminded of death, not in the negative way, but in the value of life, in that this thing does end, it's not forever. So in that way, recognizing death can make us value our life more. It can also make us value our loved ones as they're living more. You know, there's some kind of saying, bring me flowers while I'm still alive. Don't wait till I'm dead to then bring me flowers or say nice things. Say nice things to me when I'm still here. And I think we can all do that and should take that to heart. You don't know how long you'll have to say it, and you don't know how long they'll be here to share that with them. So I hope people will keep that in mind. Now, another reason why facing death can be important or another perspective to look at it is I I sometimes think about how we all have a protective sense 
to not die. So we have a fear of dying, right? If you get up to a cliff and you're about to go over, you, you think you're going to die. I remember when I was, I went bungee jumping many years ago, I had to tell myself, I remember before I got up on the platform that, okay, it's going to feel like you might die or you're going to die if you take that step, but you're not, you're safe. And so I had to override this kind of preserving part of me that thought I was going to die if I stepped off of this cliff into this, uh, you know, it's kind of like a river bank, um, because we have this very natural preservation, uh, life instinct, maybe Freud, I think, talked about that, that wants us to stay alive. And that's why you can't hold your breath. If you try to hold your breath to, to kill yourself, you won't. Even if you try to go underwater, unless you go deep enough where you can't get back up in time, you're going to come up for air. So we have this very strong drive uh, and fear of death, a drive to keep ourselves alive and a fear of death. But what I think is interesting is we have a fear of dying, which feels very natural and strong, but the fear of not living is not so strong or takes some effort or consciousness to become aware of to actually become real. So, so what do I mean by fear of not living? It's essentially what I've been alluding to, this idea that what if you don't take advantage of this life what don't you what if you don't really live your life to the fullest and we don't have that same type of visceral intense fear about that unless sometimes we face our death strangely enough and we have to be a little bit more conscious to make that happen that what what if i waste this life what if i actually can instill in myself to some degree this fear of not living of not taking advantage of the time we have we don't know how long it's going to be on this planet, in this living plane. Now, of course, you might have beliefs about an afterlife or what happens, whatever it is. But during this time, we can all do better by giving ourselves a little bit more of that fear of not living. Because that's not as natural. That doesn't come to us. I, I think it's interesting sometimes. Many people, let's say, um, you know, something's about to happen and they... they prevent themselves from dying. You know, they're, the train is about to go by and they pull themselves back. And, Whew, I almost died. But then often we just go back to living a life of not really living, of not really doing much. So what is it we're trying to survive for? Of course, there's an evolutionary explanation for that or motivation for that. We want to stay alive long enough to pass on our genes and to make sure uh, those that we pass on our genes to survive and pass them on further. Um, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Okay, I, 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 oh, my life was spared. I saved my life. But now what are we going to do with that life? And now whether or not you're faced with some kind of a scenario where you have to save your life, you still have this finite, finite amount of time. So in this way, as I mentioned, thinking about death, reading this book about death was, was dark. When I would read the book, and this has happened in some books like this that are very heavy, very dark, it, it kind of takes me a little bit down, not in a, I would say, a bad way, but into something very meaningful, but it's still a, a dark space to see someone writing about their experience dying, for example, in this point. But as I mentioned, uh, I'm very happy that I did. But it does make me become aware of what are the ways that I am not living my own life to the fullest and something to ask yourself. What might I regret at the end of my life not doing? Think about that now. Um, what are the things five years from now, 10 years from now, I would regret not doing? You know, we make 
plans, which can be good, you know, five-year goals, 10-year goals. Um, probably another thing that's kind of become an annual tradition on the show is talking about goals and setting goals as New Year's uh, approaches. Not that you can only set a goal for New Year's and sometimes they even become cliche, but it could be a good time to, to think about goals again. But rather than just thinking about goals, we can also think about what might I not do that I would regret that I didn't do? What can I imagine 10 years from now I might not do and that if I didn't do, I would regret that I didn't do or at the end of my life? That could be an important thing to think about, not just what do I want to do. And they might sound the same, but the same things might not come to your mind. You might think about doing big things and accomplishing certain goals, which is good, but you might not think about what are meaningful things in your life. What are the, the things that you would regret if you didn't do as far as showing love, giving love, trying things, taking chances, failing, if that means failing, that's okay, because the only way you can really see how far you can go or do things, you have to fail sometimes. And, and I will say this for myself, reading this book, and then I had seen Christopher Hitchens before, but not so much. I, I watched more of his videos, especially the past few days, in just understanding him more, uh, you know, understanding his writing better, but also you know, in preparing for the show, something I often do is try to look at other sources from the authors, read up on them, read people talking about them, which for me is, uh, you know, I'm very lucky to get to do that. Preparing the show to come speak to you all is uh, really, I get to get a lot out of that. I've learned a lot these years and I'm grateful for that. Um, but in watching Christopher Hitchens and his talks, I felt some of that feeling that he was very unapologetically himself, at least from what you can see. And he talked about things and he shared his thoughts and his beliefs very strongly. He didn't hold back. Um, now, people have different styles, different approaches. Some people might say, you know, there was ways that he talked that maybe were, he would be a condescending at times. I think you can definitely see that in, in the ways that he expressed himself. But what I really appreciated about him was how clearly he was expressing what he thinks and what he believes and strongly because he cared he for example you might not agree with him at all but what he was seeing that religion was having such a negative impact the way he saw it he thought he had to share his ideas strongly or that's how you feel and i appreciated watching him and for me it was in a way motivational or made me realize how much strongly or more strongly i'd want to make sure i share whatever it is that I have to share. Because I think when we get to the end of our lives, one of the things that we would regret is not sharing our gifts with the world, not sharing what we have to better the world. As I like to discuss when I talk about success, we should not measure success in what someone gets as far as money and fame and that kind of success. But really we should measure success based on how much someone gives meaning they give of themselves to help others, to contribute to arts, science, history, um, just serving others. That's how we should measure success. But one of the ways we can not meet that high standard or meet that potential is to not take some risks or try some things to really get uh, our gifts shared in that way. And that's something that watching Christopher Hitchens, I, I appreciate it and I wanted to share with you. What are the gifts, abilities you have 
that you can share uh, share with the world that would help others in, in various ways. We all have them. We all have abilities. Doesn't mean we're all going to be, you know, on YouTube as he was making these videos and talks and debates and things. That could be what you do. But I do believe that we all have something to contribute. And one of the things that we will feel bad about at the end of our life or regret is not taking risks and chances and not expressing and sharing more of those gifts with others. And, and to be quite frank, this is something I'm reflecting on for myself of how I can do that even more, how I can share even more of myself. Where am I limiting myself? Because I think we all are doing that. And we can all make sure that we put an effort into it because the comfort zone will keep you where you are. It takes some effort consciously and you have to face some anxiety and uncertainty to really get to that place to meet that potential. Potential doesn't get met unless you get uncomfortable. And again, we want to remember that as much as the fear of dying is natural, we have to consciously work on ourselves to make sure we have also a fear of not living, a fear of wasting our lives. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So, uh, talking about the book Mortality by Christopher Hitchens, which made me, of course, think about death as he shared the story of experiencing death himself and going through the process of being diagnosed with stage four cancer and sadly, within 18 months, losing his life. And we see in some ways some of his thoughts as he went through the process of dying. As I mentioned before, we are all essentially dying. It might be in different paths or it might be less clear when we're going to die. I wanted to switch, in a way, switching gears, but something I was thinking of when it comes to um, death, sometimes they'll ask, especially celebrities, athletes, how would you like to be remembered? Now, it's an interesting question because I think it, uh, you know, it does show when someone answers that what things they value or how they want to be valued or seen by others. Um, but on the other hand, it's an interesting question because it's one of those we're obviously trying to imagine what we would feel in a scenario we're not in, something that we do all the time. We call it affective forecasting. What will I feel like if I get that promotion? What would I feel like if my friend said this to me? What would I, what would I feel like in this? We're actually not that good at it. We tend to think, oh, if I get that promotion, I'll be happy forever. If my friend said that, I would never recover. But in both cases, we're usually wrong. But this is another strange one because you're trying to forecast, predict, in a way, what would you feel when you're no longer alive, which in some ways you're no longer feeling. And to me, whether or not you believe in an afterlife doesn't affect that too much because most people's beliefs of an afterlife isn't, you know, I want to um, be a part of this world or I need this world in some way. You go to some other plane or either in heaven or some advanced spiritual type of a um, existence where, you know, do they remember me fondly on earth would likely not matter much. So really you're thinking in real yourself the way you think now about some future state where actually the conditions will be very different. But I think the, one of the reasons why we care so much about our legacy, one is we're imagining, again, what we would feel now, even though it won't even be us around to experience it. But I think there could be another 
element to this or dynamic that's in play, which is when we look at our sense of self, there's been a lot of people that write about this understanding that in some ways, this sense of self or the way we think about ourselves, it could be seen as an illusion. How important we make ourselves feel. And even as a psychologist and what I talk about on this show, it is oftentimes about being yourself, expressing yourself. And, and different cultures can experience this differently or put different weight on individuality. But it's an interesting thing and something I reflect on myself. Okay, well, what am I promoting with that? Is there some element of this illusion of self that I'm playing into, which maybe I can allude to? But we do see the sense of self is so important. And some writers have theorized essentially that it could be that this sense of self is something to make our uh, make us want to make sure our genes are passed on so badly. It's so important. I am so important that passing on my genes is so important. It matters so much. When we could see it another way where why why do I care so much even if my genes are passed? One. Two, um, the way people leave, live their lives, a lot of times they don't want to pass on their genes for a variety of reasons. So it's kind of interesting, but we still have that sense of self. So I think there's this interesting dynamic in play where I, I think there is a level where the self is an illusion. And many times when people experience some type of an enlightenment moment, one of the most common ones, now people will experience this using psychedelic drugs, but we don't have to use them to, to experience this or recognize this, but they feel the interconnectedness uh, of the universe, of every everything we experience or see. And by universe, of course, includes the earth, but the whole world, there is an interconnectedness there. And this differentiation of the self, is there something, yes, in a way, physically, my body ends here, you know, even that maybe I'm not an expert in physics, there could be some ways of looking that at that differently. But is it such a big deal the way we tend to feel about it? Probably not. And uh, I do at times have issue the way ego is described by some writers, but I think there's something there that there is a sense of ego that I am so important, me, 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 that actually hurts us and hurts the people around us. We become selfish, we become unhappy, unsatisfied with life because we think we should be seen in a certain way, receive certain things. And because of that, we don't treat others around us as well either because of that self mindset. So as much as we can emphasize the self in psychology in some ways, I think we have to be aware of how we are doing that. The way I see it is that me as a self, I am able to take care of myself the most. And so because of that, I do have a responsibility, even if we thought of the whole world as interconnected, um, I would want you to take care of you the best you can. And that also can mean expressing your needs to others to help you and vice versa, that I can take care of myself better than anyone else because I'm experiencing my own feelings the most. So I do believe there's an interconnectedness, but it doesn't mean everything is same. And yes, we can say everything is one, but as much as things might be contagious, you really can't understand what's happening inside of me completely without me expressing or communicating that to some degree. And I can only take care of myself better than anyone else can because I know those 
those needs of myself. Even a baby can't take care of themselves and they're dependent on someone else to essentially read their mind and they can do a pretty good job, parents, but they're going to get it wrong. As we get older, the more we're in touch with ourselves, the better we can meet those needs. And related to what I was talking about before, the better we can express the gifts we have to others. So in that way, I think there is something valuable in all of us seeing the value in ourselves, not as better than others and definitely not worse than others, but that we all have something to give. And it would be the best for the whole world, it would be the best for the earth, for all of its citizens to tap into themselves to the best of their ability and to express that. So right now we have these wonderful scientists that have been developing the vaccine. And so they've been working hard using their knowledge, their expertise, their hard work to create something. They're giving of themselves in a way that helps others. Now, someone could say they're doing it for money and this and this, and there could be some of that. But I do believe that there are people out there that want to do good. And so it is good for them to recognize their strengths. It's not ego in the negative way, but as something that can be a gift to others and to share that. And I think that is good. So there is a way that having a sense of self because we're the ones that are in touch the most with ourselves, experience ourselves, can be good. But then there is a degree that the self becomes an illusion in this way that I'm so special, I'm so important. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things where everyone who does a reading of their past lives somehow is, you know, Cleopatra or Alexander the Great or some royalty. We want to be, in a way, feel that we are greater than so good because we can feel so small. But feeling small doesn't have to be a bad thing in the sense that we can feel small, that we're equal to everyone else and everyone plays a small part. But that together collectively is very big. Now, with just the you know few minutes that are left here, I did want to switch to this idea of legacy. So as I mentioned, people think about how will I be remembered, even though we no longer will be here to experience that. And we do have to acknowledge it does feel good when people give us praise now. So we're essentially thinking, well, it would feel good that after I die, people are still praising me, even if I don't experience it myself. I'm not there to experience it. The other way I think we can look at this, or maybe there's some connection, is the same way that we're trying to perpetuate and pass on our genes, which is in a way our sense of self, it could be that this obsession or idea of legacy has to do with our sense of wanting ourself to be passed down generation to generation. For us, ourself to be remembered in some way, it can have a similar feeling to our genes being passed on because myself is being passed on down the generations. So this is just an interesting thought that came to my mind um, a little while ago, and then when I read this book, I was reminded of it again, that there could be some connection where we have this obsession with legacy, that how am I going to be remembered? How will people, you know, appreciate me after I've died? Which again, you don't get to see or experience, um, and really doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think it has this feeling of I need to pass on my own genes. And I think we've in some ways evolved past that. Of course, we have biological tendencies and needs that make us want to have children and make us want to have our own children. But I was talking recently to someone about adopting, and I think it is a beautiful thing 
that people can do. Um, there are challenges generally with adoption. I, it's, it can be complicated in lots of different ways, but I think it's a very beautiful thing for people to do. One of the things that people, one of the reasons they don't want to do it at times is they want to have quote unquote their own children. Um, and I think it's because of this feeling of my genes need to be passed on. But really you have to ask yourself, what's your purpose or meaning in life? Uh, is it really, if you have this biological urge towards passing on your genes, but do you value that uh, in a sense? To me, it doesn't really make so much sense. It does make sense in a way, but not in the sense that it's the most important thing. Um, most people don't really think about that in that genetic way, but we're still being driven by that, that my genes need to be passed on, even though uh, it's not really something that I think most of us care about. I've joked, actually, it's interesting when you think of sex, you know, sex is, of course, something to the desire to urge is to have us reproduce. But I don't know what percentage, but probably 99% of the time that people are having sex, they don't want to pass on their genes. They're making sure that it doesn't happen by using contraception or, uh, you know, figuring out ways to make sure it does not happen. So it's interesting. That gives us an idea of sometimes the urges we have or the biological drives we have, they're no longer meeting their goals or they're inspiring us not really to do what is the right thing or the thing that we even want anymore. And we can become aware of that. So I, I didn't expect to th talk about adoption in that way, but I do think it's something for people to consider. It does have challenges, but I think it's a very noble and beautiful thing that someone could do. And it does involve in some level overriding some degree of this sense that I need to pass on my genes, which I think most people, if you ask them in a conscious way and to really think about it, would not say, yes, that's a big reason for my life. And so Coming back to the sense of legacy, what I think is unfortunate is that because we can at times be obsessed with this, and even I would be lying if I didn't think of, okay, well, how will people think of the things I'm saying? And I could see that, that I might think, how will people think about it after I'm gone? I will try to challenge that myself so it doesn't become a driving force. Would I like to be remembered positively? Of course, I would never say no to that, but I don't want that to be my driving force. What I think is important is to have our driving force be doing good for goodness's sake, to help others. And the reason why I think this is important is that when we're so consumed and concerned with how people will remember us, this can lead to things like if you're in a situation where you can help others, we might spend some of our energy focused on if we're going to get credit for this rather than focusing on helping others, which is what we're saying is the good thing to do. So is my name going to be on this school or this vaccine or on this theory that will help others so that people remember me? We'll take some time even to make sure that becomes the case. And we, again, need to pause and ask ourselves, why? What am I focused on? If doing good to help others is the reason why I'm doing it and I want to be remembered for that, if we recognize that being remembered for something really has no impact, we can recognize that we should focus on doing good rather than trying to be remembered for doing good. And yes, it can make sense to want to be remembered for doing good because usually that means we were good. So there's something that driving force can be good. I want when people think of me, they think of someone that was kind and loving and good to them. 
that makes sense and that could be a driving force in some degree that it'll help us do the right things but we have to be very careful about is that we don't sacrifice what we are doing to make sure that people remember us in a certain way and we could spend a lot of energy to make sure do people see me as good do people see me as smart and these things matter i know it's very easy to say you should never care what anyone thinks about you it doesn't matter it does matter to a degree and it does have an impact on our lives so it's not to say we shouldn't care at all and that's really even possible but be mindful of the ways that it limits you doing what you think is the good thing and to focus on doing the good thing now rather than thinking of how it's going to be remembered. Again, sometimes it could be good because when we think about how we're going to be remembered, the important things become important. We know that when people reflect on us, yeah, they might say you dressed nice, but the things they really care about is that he was so kind to us or she was so kind to us during this time, or she made such a big contribution in this field that has helped millions of people. And that's good to be driven by that. But what we have to be very careful about is that we don't focus on the end goal of being remembered, which really doesn't have much value, and focus on doing the good because that's all you can do and doing that to the most of your ability because that's really what I feel like will give yourself and your life meaning and a sense of something right and doing the right things. You choose the values that you think make sense and you live your life by them. The results you can't really control a lot of the time, especially the results of how you are going to be remembered. You know, it reminds you of in Hamilton, um, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. You don't know, you know, who's going to live and die at one point and who's going to tell your story. How will you be remembered? It can be important that we try to remember history correctly because that's fair and right. And also so we learn from it better. But going forward, we want to try to not be so focused, obsessed with how we're going to be remembered. Focus more on doing the right thing when you can, as much as you can, and the rest is history. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night.